Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, the Fire Brigades Union and the British Medical Association have both written to the Treasury signalling their intent to challenge the government's attempts to have scheme members cover the cost of the McLeod remedy. Although the prospects for a judicial review might not be that good, legally speaking, Treasury officials ought still to be alarmed because if the police are similarly annoyed, there is a good chance that the next time a Treasury official dials 999, nobody will pick up. Uh, next up, Pensions Minister Garpman's appearance before the Work and Pensions Committee last week saw updates on collective defined contribution scheme regulations and a defence of simpler statements, uh, but was perhaps most notable for the brief spat he got into with former Pensions Minister and now LCP partner Steve Webb over the questionable uh, statement season. Family rounds are always exciting, so we'll ask which side our guests take on this uh, fight between stepdad and estranged father. And finally, we'll take a broader look at the changes coming to pensions communications, which our ever-excellent colleague Stephanie Hawthorne writes could consign obtuse pension comms to history. But will the limited rollout mean that changes are too restrictive to have a real impact? I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter of Pensions Experts. I'm joined today by Michael Ambury, partner at Hyman's Robertson, and by Mark Scandleberry, co-founder of Quiet Room. And thank you both very much for joining me. We will uh, kick off in that case with McLeod and the news that Treasury officials have dared to irritate people who save them from fires and serious health issues. Both the FBU and the BMA have written separately to the Treasury to consign uh, to complain sorry, about plans to make their members pay for the McLeod remedy. The FBU wrote last week, the BMA wrote this week, and the letters are a prelude to judicial review of the plans, which were criticised by the Public Accounts Committee in October for, in effect, forcing scheme members to pay for Treasury mistakes. The government, it must be said, has no money of its own, so it's in the enviable position of never having to pay for its own mistakes. Uh, but the BMA in particular is fed up because the government decided to transfer the cost of the McLeod remedy to the 2016 valuation, thereby cancelling out the increase in pension benefits the government had initially promised scheme members. Legal experts we've spoken to, however, suggest the, cost, the odds of uh, overturning this by judicial review are slim. I think, Michael, kick off with you if that's okay. Do, do you want to sort of give us the, the, the background here and then we, we can move on to what the answers of this judicial review success are? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the background to this is really in respect to the McLeod judgment itself and whether what members, what the bodies actually feel is discrimination being draw, brought in by probably age discrimination, whether members should pay for rectification over what is this discrimination, how is that actually paid for? So um, the realistic option there is actually members of the pension scheme actually pay for rectifying that discrimination in effect, as you say earlier, Benjamin, through um, altering pension contributions or uplifts that are going into valuation process. So is it right that individual members will then say, hang on, there was a discrimination here before. The only way to pay for that discrimination as far as we're concerned is uh, hang on for us to pay for that. So does that feel right that rectifying a mistake um, involves our members covering for that mistake financially through contributions or changes to schemes itself. So you can absolutely see where that's coming from. I guess the question is, is who does pay for rectifying a discrimination? Should it be of the pension scheme and for the members of that pension scheme to rectify and make good um, what is equitable across all members is, I guess, where one argument might well come from. The other argument will be as well, shouldn't have been in the first place, so should have been sorted out earlier. Therefore, what do we do about it? I mean, the response from individuals quite rightly will be, I'm a member of a scheme. I don't want to pay for past errors. Therefore, 
my only judgment of doing that is to call action against it. That call in action, as you rightly say, Benjamin, could be emergency workers, doctors, others, then saying, tell you what, I'm not going to answer those calls that you need me to do. So in light of a pandemic, I don't know about you, but I would like an ambulance to come. I would like it to pick me up and I would like to be looked after. So I'd like a step back here to these are very important individuals. We've all gone through the pandemic and realised what you know our emergency workers have done, our NHS workers have done. Totally get where they're coming from. Could we get to a pragmatic solution that enables us to look at who pays for what and how? I think public sector, public sector pay increases are both valuable. I could see that coming in around of an argument of, you're going to give me an increase next year for my pay. Yeah, you told me in the budget, but it's going to be taken away by one other aspect. Not saying that's the intention. A wrong in history has to be put right somehow. And I guess that's the question of how do we put that right Others welcome your thoughts, smart thoughts as well. Somebody has to pay. Does everyone want to pay for it as well? And we then make good going forward. Is that sustainable and the right practice? Sure. Mark, do you have any thoughts on what you've heard so far? Do you want to come in here? Yeah, listening to Mike and also reading about McLeod earlier, it just reminds me of GMP equalization. It's just one of these things. It's like a muddle. And who pays for that muddle? And is a system rigged against us, against me? It just feels torturous, and I'm just thinking about the communications around this. You know, it's just another level of confusion, another reason to either feel the system's rigged or to switch off or to get angry. I'm not sure how how we're going to communicate about it. I mean, say with GMP equalization, what we're saying to clients and more generally is don't draw much attention to it because actually uh, it's going to be a lot of work, but it's not going to have much impact on people. I don't know. This seems like McLeod feels like it is going to have more impact on people and it is going to cause a lot more, a lot more heat. So we're going to have to talk about it very carefully because you get into the weeds very, very quickly. And the minute you're in the weeds, you lose people and you make them cross and you make them suspicious. So we're going to have to think about it really carefully. Yeah, I have to write about it about once a week since the day I started. I think torturous is a word I can fully get on board with. But uh, Mike, I think that, that that's an interesting um, sort of analogy, isn't it, between the, the way in which so we communicate about GMP or the way in which GMP equalization has worked and the way we communicate about McLeod. Is, is it right? I mean, McLeod will have more of a financial impact on members, won't it, than GMP equalization. Is that correct? Is 17 billion in total is the cost of the remedy, isn't it, which is going to be spread across? I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt your calculations or additions, Benjamin. What I'll say is it's a significant cost and that cost has to be funded from somewhere that either is from contributions or it's money being diverted from other locations through increases or otherwise. I think Mark rightly says and what we've gone through within public sector and in other areas, we've gone through a sea of changes which is perceived by members to either mean they need to retire later, they'll get a lower pension, they'll get lower increases and that's quite difficult to take on board. So it's a sizable amount that needs to be funded from somewhere I guess is the point and does that then breed people saying I can't trust my pension, can't trust what I'm going to get. Ultimately does that then say should I be in a pension scheme? It's a valuable benefit. It does need to be paid from somewhere. It's right that it should be paid either by public funding through our taxes, as it should be, and we afford for those. And equally, members of pension schemes need to pay for it themselves. So I'm not discounting. It's a huge amount of money that needs to be paid for. But in the tune of 
you know, what are the deficits in DB pensions <laughs> and a comparison of DB pensions versus DC pensions. You know, there's huge amounts of difference of levels of provision for individual members. So, yeah, I'm not discounting that economic level, Mark. I mean, it's a DB issue, isn't it? But it will filter out to everybody because, you know, most people don't discriminate between DB and DC. It's, you know, it's just a pension. So the news will filter out. Mike, I don't think people will give up on their DB pensions because of this, but I think that they will get cross because there's a sense that something's been taken away or something's at risk. And as we know, people fight very hard when they feel something's been taken from them that's rightfully theirs or they could have expected and it's been taken away. I agree, Mark. I, I, I equally don't think people will just instantly jump out of DB schemes. I guess the other question is, is, if the DB scheme members don't pay for it, and it doesn't come out of the round through funding, then who does pay for it? Um, and that then creates a whole societal issue where, you know, DC members that are in their own schemes will then say, how do I afford to be in my pension scheme and afford to pay for other things? So it, it, it does breed the question of somebody somewhere isn't going to be able to afford something unless we actually look at it in the correct way. And I'm not doubting that, now, the proposals do come through in the right way of somebody needs to fund it. However, is that the best and most appropriate level? And will a judicial review actually be able to comment more on a societal base issue as opposed to um, a very important area for, for millions of individuals in um, very valuable public service? I did speak to Penny Koger of uh, Mitchell earlier today who said that the, the prospects for the judicial review itself might not be that good but there is the chance that it creates more of a conversation about it and it puts more public pressure on the government and therefore that may be the best hope for a change in policy for instance although what that change in policy would look like of course we, we would have to wait and see i think though since we we've started talking about how we communicate difficult things to, to members we can move on to our second subject which is the uh well, I'll characterise it as the spat between ministers past and present, although, of course, the, the subject is the, the statement season. We'll deal with broader changes to, to pension comms in the next segment. But for now, uh, Guy Opperman decided that he would fight to redeem the reputation of the planned statement season, uh, which is an attempt to turn pension statements into a kind of annual event like Glastonbury or New Year's Eve or, well, Toilet Day, which I think is coming this week. And I'm sure we'll all be sitting down to celebrate it. But uh, he said his dream was for a statement season to see people all gathered around in pubs discussing their pensions, but his predecessor, Steve Webb, described this as an analogue solution in a digital world that wouldn't even accomplish very much in an analogue world. Guy Alperman then said that Steve Webb was opposed to modernisation, which is a slightly odd rebuttal, and then Steve Webb said that the government's position disproved the need for satire, which is slightly more pithy. All good fun. It does, though, risk giving the impression that the whole thing is a little bit farcical, but statement season is coming in and it is something that scheme members and administrators will have to come to terms with and implement. So I thought we'd sort of take a look at it and see if there are, in fact, arguments to be made in its favour. Everybody seems to know the ones against it. But um, Mark, as our common specialist, I thought I'd begin with you here. I'm absolutely for it. I think that uh, having worked with with Rustin Smith over two-year period to try and get this uh, simple annual statement off the ground. The real value is that you can line up three or four pension statements together. And as you look at them, uh, you can easily compare them. You can add them up. You can uh, total them into one pot and get a proper sense of what you actually have and what you might need to do in order to increase the size of that pot. If they all came roughly in the same week or even the same month, but if they came in the same week, you'd be able to do that. The trouble is if they come throughout the year, say you have three, four, and increasingly people have more than that, 
you're going to put them in a drawer and then you're going to have to take them out. And I think people might do that, but I think it'd be far, far better if it came at the same time. But I think more interestingly, if there was a season, you could then have a proper campaign around that season. You know, you could have an advertising campaign. You could have a proper identity for this season. You could really celebrate it. You could, everybody could come together and fund it, fund this, you know, all, all the providers could be coming together to fund it. I think it would create a real opportunity to not just talk about statements, but actually in talking about statements, you were talking about pensions more generally. So I think it's a really good idea. I think, for example, as I was sort of writing some notes for this, that actually you could do it in such a way that, you know, think of it as a campaign, that things like they would all come in an envelope that would be easily identified as a season to be merry, the pension statement season. Um, and I think it makes something of it. I think there's resistance to it, it because it means that, that you know, large organisations have to, you know, organize and set like sell slightly differently so they're going to have systems that are all set up to do it at certain times calculations i mean there'll be so many reasons why they wouldn't want to change but actually i've just written here in caps it's not their money it's other people's money it's their job to service people whose money they're investing and making money from uh, so of course it's hard but lots of things are hard in business you know you have to adapt you have to make changes so i think this is one of the things that would be in the public interest to do. And I think once we did it once and we did it really, really well, we'd be saying, why didn't we do this before? That's my first point. I don't need to speak about Steve. I mean, I've got some thoughts on Steve Webb, but I think I should go over to Mike now, see if he agrees with me. We, we can certainly come back to the subject of, of Steve. Um, yeah, Mike, if I can bring you bring you in here. Obviously, Mark has mentioned that some of the resistance comes about because of, say, the administrative burden this, this incurs um, and the cost of the administrative burden that must be net. And obviously, you know, cognizant of the fact that, as Mark says, it's not their money. Um, nevertheless, it is scheme members' money, which presumably they'll be in some part having to spend on making all of this work. So it has to work properly. Are, are pension schemes in general and pension scheme administrators in, in particular up to the task, do you think? So first question for me is, are the administrators up to the task? Yes, they are. I think the problem with administrators is then what do you do with that information? I, th I think brilliant firms like like Mark, like Quiet Room, people that are able to engage and communicate is the the difference and the issue for me. The work that Mark referenced before that uh, Rustin's done on firstly simplifying benefit statements and making them transparent and understanding them as the first primary issue is not being able to supply the data, it's being able to supply it in a meaningful an impactful format that somebody's able to pick it up in the format that they want, in the language that they want, and then be able to do something about it. So I think the data is relatively easy so long as that, that can be prescribed and you give administrators and providers enough time to be able to do it. It's then what you do with that information. So if we think it's the idea of coming together for me, of actually looking at the information and then what to do with that information, where we look at being supplied with what's your pension scheme what's my target at retirement how am I able to do something with it I want it to give me something that then nudges me that gives me direction that tells me what to do with my information do I need to consolidate my benefits do I need to move them around to get better value so giving a consumer that sort of choice through having an event that I can spend a little bit of time Thanksgiving Christmas 
any faith-based event or non-faith-based event, a little bit of time just spent meaningfully um, on on this particular topic and then engendering some sort of action. I think engagement is the key. It's not the provision of the data. It's then how do I receive it and give me something and what to do with it. But hopefully that makes sense. And that's yeah. me fully agreeing with <laughs> with let's 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 have this date and do something meaningfully as a society with it. I think the date is a springboard for all the things you're talking about, Mike. But I think you need to create, you know, you need to create the environment, you need to create the conditions so that people actually are. And I think the idea of people talking about their pensions down the pub, I don't think that's so ridiculous. That's what people are doing already. People are asking their mates, what is this? Am I in a DB or a DC? What's the difference between the two? Should I do this? Should I do that? That's where people are getting their information. And that's a good thing, but it's also got its own problems. But that's maybe for another discussion. So I think it, it could create a platform for the conversations to happen, the kinds that, kind of conversations you're talking about, Mike. Can I say a little bit about the, the, the paper-based nature of it? I think it's a really easy quip uh, for Steve Webb to say, you know, yeah, what a solution. In a, in a digital age, we're still sending out post. Um, I thought Stephanie made a really good point in her, her article that actually it's quite easy to miss an email notification saying you've got a statement. Whereas if you get a physical thing through the door and you're getting a number of physical things at the same time and you're expecting it because you've seen an advert, uh, you know, a, a, you know, sheet advert. And when you get the envelope, it references that, you know, the advertising campaign. The whole thing, I think, has has some impact because it's you're kind of expecting it or you're not surprised when it arrives or you 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 recognize it for what it is when it arrives you have a sense of its relevance to you and in the sense when you have it all coming at the same time there's a timeliness about it so i think the paper-based solution is not that bad considering we don't even have a dashboard which is up for a whole other conversation but it's extraordinary we don't have the dashboard so in the absence of a dashboard let's do this thing and let's make it interesting i just want to say a quick thing about it being called the simpler annual statement we ended up with that in the end because actually that's a more immediately attractive idea we have simplified something but actually that's not its secret source its secret source is a fact that it's standard we we were considered for a long time calling it the standard annual statement because the problem with statements as they stand as they as they are now everybody does it differently and what we're trying to do here with the, with the simpler an, annual statements actually standardize it so that you know, as I was saying earlier, you can look across and you can make sense of it because then the kind of cognitive load is reduced because everything is simplified and looks the same, is in the same kinds of colours, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things I'm really disappointed about in where the government has actually got is that we spent a long, long time and a lot of research with Jeanette Weir really refining the words, really refining the ideas that we condensed and we expressed in the simplest most direct way. Now, you know, those are really well understood by all the people who, who we did the research with, both consumers, members, and with, with the industry as well. But as it stands, the providers now are free to word it as they as they want. And I think that is a weakness. I think we should have stuck to the words that we came up with. And it's not because we came up with them, because I think being standardized is more important than people having their own little take on things. I think that's a slippery slope. I think we have seamlessly moved into the final, which was the broader question of pension comms anyway. And picking up on the point of standardization, now I might be wrong about this, so I'm going to rely on one of you to tell me if I am, but 
Am I right in thinking that the simpler statements, one of the ways in which they're not standardized is that they might not give the same information to two different members from two different providers about, say, investment pathways, in which case the, their direct comparability is, is somewhat lessened. Am I correct in that assumption? Benjamin, I think you're absolutely right that it doesn't really dovetail in terms of what happens at the point of retirement. It gives to the point at retirement, but then post that, does it say what an individual might well do, do and the plethora of choice? Let's face it, most individual consumers nowadays are getting to the point of retirement and potentially making suboptimal choices because they're not going to pensions-wise. They're not engaging with their pensions earlier enough to then understand, do I go out to take advice or take guidance from somewhere else? Do I go down the pub, et cetera, et cetera? So you're absolutely right that the post-retirement solution um, and guidance for individual members could be completely different and sort of muted in the way that it's delivered. And then um, just one more briefly, if I, if I might, Mike, um, as I understand it, that there are obviously these changes, broader changes coming through uh, for DC members, but the changes that are due to come in from October next year, uh, they don't include other types of pension schemes. Is that correct? So I think in Stephanie's article, workplace legacy schemes, for instance, individual pensions, defined benefit and hybrid schemes and schemes where members are already drawing down benefits might not benefit from some of these new measures brought into to clarify and to improve member communication. It sounds like you're, you're both broadly in favour of both statement season and simpler statements. So is there then an argument for expanding these quickly to encompass all other kinds of scheme or is there a reason that they're limited first? Personally, um, where Mark started off earlier, made a brief comment about a pensions dashboard. Do you know, as an individual, I would like to know all of my pension benefits, how they add up, when I can take them and be making appropriate decisions without standardised information across all pensions. And there needs to be difference because they do pay out at different times. They give different guarantees and different levels. of. But I want to be able to understand that so I can determine what I want to do. If I'm lucky enough that I've had a DB pension and it's guaranteed to last me X and is paid for, say, from age 55 or an early date, I want to know that because it means that I can play with my Vegas money from my DC pension that I've had for a very little period of time and, you know, maybe choose that. I don't need that. I want to use that for inheritance in future rather than even a pension. So for me, it's about an informed choice. The the quicker we can get to a standardized format of information being provided to me as a consumer, either through a dashboard or otherwise, I think the better it is, whether that's back to World Toilet Day or World Pensions Day benefit statement, 100% sitting down with you at the same point in time. Excellent. Um, I think that brings us to the close of the principal part of the programme. However, we do always like the close of that always a pensions angle. And uh, Mark, if I can bring you off mute for this one, because I think you have uh, a pensions angle for us. Right. This is a, a big idea, but pretty unformed. The metaverse. So this is my understanding that the metaverse is built around blockchain. And that will allow every person to have an individual and unique identity. And that identity, and this is, I think, when Web 3.0 comes in, that identity will allow us to move seamlessly through all areas of our online life. Now, my knowledge doesn't extend much further than that. But when I heard that, it just made me think that one of the impediments to people engaging with their money and their pensions being the one people find it hardest to kind of get their heads around and get interested in and get involved in is because all the financial gatekeepers that we that we have to 
navigate those kind of gated communities sort of creates friction in the system, which means, I mean, we find it all the time, you know, you want to log on to your to your pension website and you have to go through a whole, you know, passwords and et cetera, et cetera. And it just becomes difficult because you don't do it very often. So you forget your password or, you know, you, it, it's just quite difficult. But the little I'm beginning to understand, and I'm going to really start thinking about this in some depth, is that the metaverse and the unique identities that we will have will allow us to move with far greater ease onto, you know, what you, you know, you call now websites where we can, or apps where we can access information about our money and do things related to our money. It should become much, much easier. Now, that needs a lot more explanation. I just put it out there as an idea that somebody just said to me in a couple of sentences just today and I thought, well, of course, we have APIs, but there's still clunkiness. So what I think might happen in a nutshell is that our lives, when it comes to our money, is, is managed by the gatekeepers that kind of hold our money. This may change radically. And if this changes radically, we might, you know, as individuals, start interacting with it differently, making different decisions, demanding different services. So the whole world that we know, financial world we know, could be flipped over because of the metaverse and Web 3.0. I think you need to get an expert to talk about this. <laughs> well, it's a, certainly it's a fascinating always a pensions angle. I mean, maybe then Gartham was wrong for the long term aim being to get people around pubs talking about pensions, because maybe in the future we'll, just be, we'll be in the metaverse talking about digital <laughs> pubs. I hope not with digital drinks, because I don't think that'd be quite so good fun. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, that does bring us to the close of the program. So thank you both very much to Mark and to Mike for joining us as ever. We will be back in two weeks' time, and we will hope to see you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.